Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Hey Jonathan, how's it going? It's going better than Ryan Lochte's week. That is rough stuff. Can we both agree on that? There, I, I, do, I don't even know what to say. So before we recorded this, we watched uh, Usain Bolt run the 200 meters. He already won the 100 meter this week. Uh, self-proclaimed and you know media proclaimed fastest man in the world actually second fastest man in the world because Ryan Lochte is faster than him because he got out of Brazil just in time <laughs> that was well played Jonathan <laughs> so, but I feel he's, like he's, you've been uh, just waiting to yes, say that yes but he's, yeah. he's been indicted so he might be going back so we'll see that's a not an SBC related thing I'm sure that Tim Ellsworth down there covering for Baptist Press not really on the Ryan Lochte beat no, but I did not realize that he, I don't know if he lives in North Carolina. It said he was back in North Carolina. I, I didn't. I, well, I know didn't. he's a kind of a, he's a Florida Gator. So, but I don't know if he's from North Carolina or not. I, you know, we'll have to sick, uh, you have to put uh, Sam on that one. Apparently he landed here. He was in the Charlotte airport, I think. And uh, so fascinating story. It does seem to have kind of overshadowed the Olympics, which have been wonderful. And I, I will say, you mentioned Tim Ellsworth. Shout out to him. There's been some great uh, coverage at Baptist Press of a lot of these uh, Olympic athletes. He's he's done a really tremendous job down there and uh, some fantastic stories coming out of Rio besides the uh, shenanigans of some swimmers. One in particular. Uh, but... Uh, he did have a Tim Ellsworth did release a story on the Thursday we're recording this about wrestler Helen Morales. She today wrestled and won a gold medal against a Japanese wrestler whose name I'm not even going to attempt, who had <laughs> not lost a world championship in that weight class since 2002. She had That's won like 16 straight world and Olympic championships, and Morales beat her today. So uh, Tim Ellsworth was the man on the spot with the, the Helen Morales story. I, I hope I'm saying that name right. I am not quite sure how to say it. But um, but yeah, really cool that it came out today and she won the gold medal today and everything and, and ended that streak that had been going on since 2002. She was a, at one time a Missouri Baptist University student yeah. as well. That's in, in the story. So uh, really just some some really neat stories. I was talking to somebody today about how it's so funny, these sports that we don't follow for four years. And then all of a sudden we're a big, I know everything fan. about handball now, archery and uh, water polo, all these, all these sports we never track with. And then uh, for two weeks, we just have a great time. Yep. It is. Uh, it's always fun. And uh, it's neat to see just the stories that emerge because you have things, you know, yes. like the, the Helen Morales, uh, story and and different things and and the swimmers and the gymnast and even some of the sports uh, that we do follow uh, that we know some of the names right. of you know there's still uh, some great stories that come out of those sports so always fun yes. and um the the end of the Olympics is nigh I know but we still have the SBC to talk about before we get into that though want to thank our sponsor once again the nine marks at Southeastern Conference that's coming up. At the end of September, the Nine Marks at Southeastern Conference equips church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. This two-day conference is held on the campus of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and is open to the general public pastors and their staff. This year's Nine Marks at Southeastern Conference will be held on 
September 30th and October 1st, 2016. Register online at 9marksse.org. That's 9-M-A-R-K-S-S-E.org. And uh, this year's theme and focus will be discipleship. And that is one of those nine marks. Mark number eight, I believe. We've we've talked about uh, one more year of the nine marks of nine marks. I guess unless they uh, unless they start adding gotta more. Add so. a tenth. We got. I got to talk to Mark Dever. We got to. That's a branding <laughs> issue, man. You ran out. You you got you you put yourself in a box. You got to come that's up right. with it. it. You know. I wonder if Gary Chapman. He started his his five love languages this year. We talk about this one, and then after year five, he's like, "What do I do?" Do we start over? Do we add a sixth? Yeah. Well, when you would start out with nine marks and you say, let's do one every year. I mean, nine years seems really far away, but But uh, then you're in year eight and you're going, um, here we are. Here we are. All right. Well, let's jump into the news, Amy. Big news out of my home state this week. Unfortunately, the flooding down in Louisiana and uh, the SBC Disaster Relief Group uh, out of NAM, Send Relief, and David Melber, the vice president of Send Relief, they have activated four kitchens uh, to deploy to South Louisiana. These kitchens each have a capacity of 10,000 meals per day to be able to put out uh, down in South Louisiana. That's incredible. What uh, what kind of food? I mean, I guess it's That's a just... lot of peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have no idea. Uh, I'm sure it's hot food. I saw. I sent you a picture the other day of uh, one of the – it wasn't a NAM uh, group, but a, a group right. that was putting out hot meals for those – that were working in uh, South Louisiana and, and the areas I grew up in, in East Baton Rouge Parish, Tangipahoa Parish, Livingston Parish, all really, really devastated by this flooding. And uh, they were putting out a cooler, a, a cooler chest, you know, like a huge yes. Yeti chest full of yes. chicken noodle soup, like the, yeah. the nice hearty chicken noodle soup. Just dipping right yeah. out of it. Just, just dipping out, right out, ladling yeah. out of the, the big thing, trying to keep it warm, a massive, yeah. you know, 40, 50 gallon cooler. Uh, well, I guess it's not cooler. I guess it's a warmer in this this instance. Right. Well, and this is just a reminder uh, of how important uh, Southern Baptist disaster relief continues to be, uh, because when these things happen, it seems like they are always showing up. And part of showing up, it takes tremendous preparation. And uh, you don't just have four kitchens, you know, that pop up. I mean, it, every one of these has a capacity of 10,000 meals per day. Uh, the story uh, that we'll, we'll share a link to, the Baptist Press story, lays that out. And it says that all four um, disaster relief teams deploying have twice that capacity. So it's pretty incredible what the uh, Southern Baptist disaster relief teams are able to do and uh, to be able to respond at a moment's notice. Yes, it is. And, you know, we, we talk about this. It's great that we're able to respond, great people to do this. But at the same time, heartbreaking that it has to be done and that we even have to offer these services. Um, and, you know, from the, my state, my home state, uh, just some of the pictures and images coming out of there just been devastating. So um, thoughts oh, and prayers incredible. out to those in Louisiana. Uh, they are near and dear to me, many of them. My parents uh, live in Louisiana, but they're just not in a place that's affected right now. They're up in the northern, central northern part of the state. So they were not affected by this, but a lot of people I know, a lot of people I grew up with were. So it's uh, it's been a rough, rough week for them. Uh, and some of them just yeah. five or six months after uh, another massive flooding. There was a, another massive flooding event down in Louisiana earlier this year that kind of went unnoticed, but uh, just some people had just gotten back on their feet after that, and now they're, they're digging out again. So uh, a rough time mm-hmm. in Louisiana, and uh, we're thankful again to the Southern Baptist Disaster Relief folks for uh, all that they do. 
All right, moving up to Indiana, Cecil Sagel, the executive director of the State Convention of Baptist in Indiana, will retire on December 16th. He made that announcement this week during the executive board's meeting at the Indiana Convention's Highland Lakes Baptist Camp in Martinsville, Indiana. Cecil's been there five years. Amy, not a long stay, but Cecil is uh, 76, as it says here in the release. So uh, retirement, I guess, not too surprising, uh, given you know, the age there. Right. I think that's probably not too surprising. He was elected there in 2011. He was an interim executive director, interim executive director there for eight months and then uh, signed on to be the executive director. But he'll be retiring. So uh, they, they're already forming the search committee. It will be or they, they already have the search committee. Their bylaws say that that's the administrative committee. So uh, the chair is David Cullison from uh, First Southern Baptist Church in Evansville to search for a new executive director. So that's another state uh, with an opening, and it will be very interesting to see how that develops. Yes, I checked out our uh, my little chart that I have for state convention executive directors. It looks like I have three openings on it right now, and that would be Montana, Indiana, and Pennsylvania, South Jersey. So those look like the three. I may be missing one in my chart but I think right now those are the three that we have open after uh, the last one got filled was over in Maryland. So with uh, Kevin Smith. So uh, trying to find out some more information on this, see uh, maybe where they're going to head and what the, uh, the days ahead look like uh, at my trustee meeting next week. Uh, whenever we get to Ridgecrest, Steve McNeil, who's the uh, church the leader. Yep. Steve McNeil, who's the church leader development and communications team leader for the state convention of Baptist in Indiana, uh, actually wrote this relief. He's on our board. For Lifeway. So uh, I have to check in with him and see what's going on in Indiana and uh, see where these guys are headed up there in Indiana. So we wish Cecil all the best in his retirement and we'll be praying for David Cullison and his team as they search for the next leader of the State Convention of Baptists in Indiana. Now, some more departures down at Guidestone. They had a restructuring that was announced this past week. 59 individuals took a voluntary retirement option. Nine other employees were unable to be accommodated in open positions and were offered severance package. And uh, many positions in the company were combined or redeployed, and many other employees were assigned and reassigned to new positions. So uh, some restructuring going on at Guidestone. A departure of 68 individuals at the uh, financial and insurance provider for the Southern Baptist Convention. Their staff uh, size was something we were kind of wondering about, about 450. Is that what we uh, found yes. on the website? So yes. um, a little bit over 15% of the workforce, but uh, some restructuring and just kind of keeping up with the times. It's, it's a common thing between businesses and entities. So we see it quite often. And uh, this time it's coming from Guidestone. Yeah. And uh, the, the story just explains that they had a, a, a time where they were updating the, the long range plan. They called 2015 the year of efficiency uh, when they were just looking to see what they could do to be more efficient in uh, every way. And so they're trying to prepare the ministry um, for 2018, which will be its uh, 100th anniversary, and then beyond to really be set up for the future. And I know, of course, as as times change, as the economy changes, um, as the healthcare industry changes, and some of the um, recent legislation, we know, of course, uh, I'm sure has made a big adjustment in how they do what they do. Uh, they have to really be thinking all the time: how do we set this up for um, for a long term? 
opportunity uh, to serve Southern Baptists, to serve others, uh, to ser- just to serve those who are in the ministry. So uh, they want to the, the, they they want to do that in the best way possible and be good stewards. Uh, so very very interesting development there. And speaking of money, moving over to a, a kind of cool story from Kentucky uh, this past week, First Baptist Church in Mayfield collected an eye-popping $118,000 in a single day to support church plants in Arizona and New York. That's incredible. Wow. The Arizona church planting will be done by Rick Downing, who'd previously served an associate pastor. He's working to start several churches in Native American villages in Arizona. And then Chris Turpin, a Kentucky native, is moving to New York's Staten Island and will be planting a church up there on Staten Island. So uh, two different parts of the country, but Kentuckians at First Baptist Church Mayfield, what a generous gift uh, for that, $118,000. Yeah, and that was on their Founders Day that they did that. So that that's a really special, special day. I'm trying to remember. I think I've been to Mayfield. I think I was in a wedding in that church. Oh, not yours. I would hope you would remember that. Not mine, no. Um, but if I'm thinking of the right of the right place, the right area. It was very, very pretty, very nice, a very nice little town and a very nice church, if I'm thinking of the right of the right place. You know what uh, I think of whenever you talk about Mayfield, though? Ice cream? Yes. So is that where the dairy is? Is that where that name comes from? No, no, okay. that, that dairy is, uh, it's in Tennessee. Yeah, that's kind of the local ice cream here in Nashville. Yeah, it's fantastic, and it is also in Wake Forest, North Carolina, now right across the street from my house. All right, yes. some other good news out of Kentucky. The cooperative program giving top $20 million uh, in the fiscal year, and there's still a month left, Amy. That's incredible. Yeah, so we've been talking about the cooperative program giving, how it's going up across the SBC, across all the states. Uh, you know, we've talked about Florida. We've seen them just boom up in cooperative program giving. Kentucky, another one of these 50-50 states. Uh, they are above and beyond where they have been uh, for the corporate program giving in the past, uh, also up in Annie Armstrong giving, up in Lottie Moon Christmas offering giving as well. But this is the first time in 10 years that Kentucky Baptists have exceeded their budget uh, for their cooperative program gifts. So congratulations to Paul Chitwood and the whole gang at the Kentucky Baptist Convention. That's fantastic. All right, speaking of weddings, Amy, not the kind of weddings I'm guessing you were at, but yes. uh, new research from LifeWay Research uh, talking about same-sex marriage. <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> no, yeah, not, not the wedding, which I'm, st- I'm starting to think maybe I don't have the right town. But anyway, um, no, different wedding. Different wedding. Okay, good. All right, so I'm going to let you explain this because I have a question for you. So the first question in the LifeWay Research was, have you been asked to perform a same-sex marriage? This is a thousand Protestant pastors were asked this question. Have you been yes. asked to perform a same-sex marriage? 88% said no. 11% mm-hmm. said yes. 1% said not sure. Amy, would you like to explain the not sure answer there, please? <laughs> I, yeah, I, no, you got nothing. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I mean, um, I, I understand that some people may have just answered it that way. I'm just trying to figure out what, what really well, rationale goes now, into asking or answering that question with not sure? Well, I mean, perhaps there was a, I mean, there are some names that are neutral. Okay. 
Perhaps someone sent an email request or something. I'm, I'm Perhaps not really Perhaps they didn't sure. know if they were being asked to perform it. Maybe they were just being asked to host it and they didn't know. And maybe they were just on the fence. That's possible, I guess. Uh, I'm going to just say I am not sure what they meant when By they not said sure. not sure. Okay. I'm just going to just go with that. Yeah. Right. Before we move on to the next question, uh, any surprise on that that had been so many uh, that said no that they had not been asked? Protestant pastors? No. And I think also we have to, to realize that number is going to be very high anyway, because I mean, we, we still, it still hasn't been that many years uh, that this was something that, that uh, would, would even happen. And then even at that, I think there's still been a lot uh, of civil ceremonies, some um, in, in churches, but I, I would just, I would just say you're only talking, I mean, you're talking about in, in a year, for many for many pastors, particularly in smaller churches, how many weddings are they asked to do in a year? You know, yeah. just period. So I'm not very surprised at all by that okay. That high number. All right. right. Now, the second question, though, uh, that, that seemed like a, a much more interesting answer uh, and collection of answers here. Where can an LGBT person serve in your church? And the responses were anywhere, 30%, at least one service area, but not anywhere. So they can serve in some, but not all. Uh, was 15%, nowhere, 34%, and have it discussed it slash not sure, 21%. Uh, yeah, as you can see in the release, this is, it's still, and we already know that's a contentious issue for a lot of denominations. Interestingly, you know, you have basically around the same 34% saying nowhere, 30% saying anywhere. So, I mean, your highest number, it's kind of even, is it's either all or none. And then these kind of middle, middle of the road. I'm kind of surprised that haven't discussed it or not sure would be as high as 21%. See, I thought it would have been higher. See, I would think that, that so many people would, they would have really had to start addressing this or thinking, thinking about this and not just say not sure or we hadn't talked about it. I mean, this is a major issue in our culture. So, uh, and a major question. I, it's interesting. So it says that, um, 44% of all pastors in the survey said um, LGBT people can serve in helping or serving roles. Fewer said they could lead in public worship, teach publicly, or hold public leadership roles. So I found that very interesting. Yeah, so more culture-engaging research here from Life Air Research. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if how these numbers change, if this is one that they will ask you know, year after year and track the changes yeah. on this. Uh, I, I'm not sure where it would have been a year or two ago. Um, you know, so this is kind of good to have as a baseline for LGBT right. service and LGBT marriage as well. Um, so we'll have to kind of watch this. I, my, my guess is that the, the first question, uh, have you been asked to perform a same-sex marriage ceremony? That will change. That will change, that will probably change. increase. That 11% will probably go up. Uh, I don't, I don't right. see it going any other way. Uh, and and for the mention, for the reason that you mentioned, even that it's only been about fifteen months or fourteen months since the Obergefell decision, so uh, it it hasn't been that long since this has been legal. Therefore, I would see that number going up in the future. Now, their answer to to the question, if they are asked to to uh, perform the same sex marriage ceremony, may not change, but I, the fact that they will probably get asked this more uh, is quite likely. Right. And, you know, they draw the connection that there was a, a previous LifeWay research study 
that was back in uh, 2015, I believe, and uh, it indicated that still, you know, most Protestant pastors believe that that same-sex marriage is morally wrong. So, as uh, Scott McConnell said, it's it's not really surprised. It's it's not really a surprise that that number is so high in being asked to perform it. So the 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 studies kind of match up, but it will be very interesting to see how this. Uh, progresses data like this. That's going to do it for the news this week, and that'll move us over to our interview time. This week on SBC This Week, Brian Fry from the North American Mission Board joins us. Brian is the Collegiate Evangelism Strategist for the State Convention of Baptist in Ohio and also uh, leads the Ohio Collegiate Ministries team and joined in 2003 the NAM Collegiate team and is the National Collegiate Strategist for the North American Mission Board. Brian, thanks for joining us, man. Man, thanks for allowing me to join in. You said all that really, really well. That was a mouthful. Yeah, well, you have a lot of titles, man. I know, man. We're we a lot of hats. That stuff down. I'm Baptist, man. I'm Baptist. Yes. So tell us, uh, just kind of give us the overview. I know Nam has has kind of changed some things in how collegiate ministry is organized uh, nationwide and with states. Give us kind of an overview of you know what people may think of collegiate ministry and kind of where things are headed now uh, on our campuses. Yeah, Southern Baptists have long been engaged in reaching the college campuses. Uh, in the 19-teens, 1920s, uh, Baptist Student Union began to emerge across the collegiate landscape, across the southeast, and then began to move outside of the south. Uh, what has happened over the, the last oh, 10 or 20 years is uh, we've continued to see Baptist collegiate ministries doing well, and then we've also seen the emergence of uh, collegiate church plants and then other groups that are SBC, like co- collegiate uh, Ministries known as Christian Challenge. So uh, we see Southern Baptist Collegiate Ministry nationwide. There are about 800 units total at this point in time, and there are about 88,000 engaged in SBC life through our Baptist Collegiate Ministry system, which would be BCMs as local church, and that's collegiate church plants as well. Now, you mentioned BCMs. That's kind of the traditional, especially here in the southern states, uh, ministry You know, through the state conventions, BCMs, and Maybe there's a, a different model coming along. I, I know you guys spoke about this at the annual meeting. Uh, you had some guys from uh, Iowa State there for that and, and talked about what they're doing up there. Tell us a little bit more about this, the sending church plant uh, versus maybe the traditional BCM movement. Yeah, so uh, typical BCM, uh, so we'll throw away, throw around some different language here. So BSU, it's Baptist Student Union, it can be known as Baptist Student Ministry, or uh, the most, or the, I guess the latest way to call it is Baptist Collegiate Ministry or BCMs. Uh, what what that has been is a, an outreach of local churches onto campuses. So uh, local churches involved with cooperative program on the associational state level will uh, merge uh, funding, will merge strategies together to reach out on college campuses. Uh, what we've seen uh, in spots, I would say over the last 20 years, are, are, is this idea of uh, churches that maybe started out as BCMs shifting into a church itself. So when you talk about the guys at Cornerstone Church in Ames, Iowa, this is a Baptist collegiate ministry, it's about 20 years old, uh, that shifted, I, I say a Baptist collegiate ministry that's 20 years old. Really, it's a, it's a Baptist student union that's about 40 years old. About 20 years ago, they said, hey, let's become a local church. So they launched out as a church with about 200 college students and about 20 adults. And since then, you, now you have Cornerstone, which has uh, evolved into Salt Network. They're one of a dozen or so collegiate churches around the country that are 
uh, between 10 and, and 30 years old at this point in time. Their methodology is very much to say, hey, we want to reach onto the college campus. We want to be the church that engages the college campus. Uh, when I started getting into the conversation in 2008, what we thought was that these collegiate churches were about 80% college students and about 20% community students, and that's all we were looking for. Uh, but as time has gone on, we've learned more about what's happening. What we're seeing is these churches that are anywhere from 90% to 50% college students, and uh, one of their top three priorities is, is reaching that college campus. So they would say, hey, we, we want to reach the community, we want to love the community, but we also want to make sure that we're always reaching college students. That's a laser focus of what we do. So that, that's, that's really it. Uh, one of their top three goals is to reach a college campus, and uh, they're a 50% or more college students. So that's when we talk about collegiate churches, that was what we're talking about at this point in time. Now, with these collegiate churches, how do they fit in, I guess, to the, the larger NAM strategy, especially with the Sin Cities and different things like that, and church planning? How, how do these collegiate churches kind of mesh into that strategy? Yeah. So as we talk about the college campus across North America, you have about 21.7 million college students. About a million of those are in Canada and the remainder are in the United States. So that's a huge number. But when we start looking at how do we engage that population uh, what we looked at is where do most of those students reside, and then where are the students when they reside, wh where are they closest to the college campuses. So what we realized is that out of those residential students, those who are pursuing four-year degrees on college campuses, about 70% of all of those, so that's, that's about half that 20 million, those reside on 400 of the largest college campuses uh, across U.S. and Canada. So instead of saying, hey, we want to reach all 21.7 million and including schools that would be uh, mortuary training schools and uh, online schools or, or things, things that uh, would not necessarily be those that would be in a four-year residency program, we decided to fixate on those 400, to really lock in on those 400, because that gives us the place where uh, there are highest concentration of students, they're going to be there for the highest extent of time, and that really gives us the ability to reach college students as freshmen, disciple them and raise them up with the hopes of sending them out as church planters once they graduate from college. Most of the time you have about four to six years with collegiate students to kind of minister to them. How, how do you see the difference in maybe reaching them and, and developing them over the four to six years uh, differently with a collegiate church plant versus uh, maybe a traditional BCM model? Yeah. So uh, not really con comparing models. Yeah, not so, really contrasting, just maybe the different aspects of each. Yeah, I think uh, even framing out the broader conversation, as Southern Baptists, we have long spent time saying, hey, we raise these students up within our churches as children. They come to know Christ. Then as they come to know Christ, then we develop them up in youth ministries, and then we raise them out, we send them out. And, and we're losing so many of these college students or these students that have grown up within SBC life and have hit the college campus. And I think what we've tried to do is, is shift the conversation not to the exclusion of those students, but to say, hey, there are a lot more students out there on the campus who have never heard the gospel, who have never been engaged in church. And if we will focus on all of our energies and our efforts on trying to figure out ways to reach the lost on campus, and then those who are coming out of our churches, engaging them in that process of reaching out to new folks, that, that creates an environment where we're so much more about increase than we are about sustaining. So uh, not, not to that that's an exclusion of one or the other. Both do that type thing. But the more we say we're trying to reach into the college campus, we're trying to reach new pockets onto the college campus, 
where people have never heard the gospel or people do not walk with Jesus, it accelerates the whole process. So uh, maybe using a little bit of football analogy, uh, we're really trying to use a very aggressive form of reaching out folks instead of trying to play a prevent defense where we're trying to keep everything that we have. We're trying to expand kingdom instead of just maintaining what we've already gained. Now, you mentioned the salt uh, company up in Ames, Iowa, and, and what they're going on up there. What are some other, maybe some examples that we can see of this uh, throughout the U.S.? Yeah. So I think uh, may, maybe to share what salt company, uh, now the salt network, what they're trying to do, they've set a goal to be on 20 more campuses in the next five years, major universities. And their model is to say, we want to plant a college ministry and a church uh, side by side. So one feeds the other. Not that we want to talk about uh, yin and yang, but I mean, really, it's, it's the kind of driver. The students yeah, drive partnership, the community. Yeah. yeah, it's a great partnership, a great facilitation, a great flywheel that's going on. You uh, fly out to Washington State University, and now Eastern Washington, Central Washington, University of Oregon will plant in, in the next month. Resonate Church started about nine years ago as a collegiate ministry, shifted from a BCM to uh, a church. And over that time, they've seen 500-plus uh, baptisms as a part of what they're doing. They've sent all kinds of students out on mission projects and trips. They're trying to lead college students to Christ as freshmen so that at, at the end of their college year, they're thinking church planning, and then at the end of that two years post-college, after they've done what they would call a two-year ask, then they would move into a new university context. You can go down to uh, University of California, Berkeley, and see a church there called Grace Point. So they are engaging well into that campus. They, they actually have a church that is uh, about 20 minutes south of campus, but they engage campus really well. So they have about 1,300 folks engaged in their church on a regular basis. And then they plant to other cities uh, like Austin, Texas, uh, the, around Southern California, University of, um, University of Minnesota, is another one of their targets, uh, University of Washington, this last year. So they've planted out there. You shift over to Ohio, and then you have the H2O network. So they started out as Bowling Green State University. In 2007, they had about 200 in their church. They said, hey, we want to plan on every major college campus in Ohio. So at this point, they planted out from uh, that one location in 2007 to nine other campuses around the state. So they've got three more, and they've got everything covered. Uh, at this point in time, but they've gone from about 200 in their system, 200 at the one church to about 2,500 in their system at this point in time. So, right. so if we have people listening and they kind of want to get involved and, and maybe, you know, they're already involved in their local college church, or maybe they have a, a great college ministry at their church, how do they get involved with you guys and what you're going on with the, the Collegiate Collective? Yeah, I think the, just the very, the very best thing that they can do is just begin to look at the Collegiate Collective website. Uh, what we understood was there's this need from local churches of all sizes, of all ages, of all, uh, of all demographics to say, hey, we, we want to figure out ways to reach onto the college campus. So we designed the Collegiate Collective website. So a guy named Raul Agarwal, uh, along with Paul Worcester, is one guy in Florida, one guy in uh, California. We said, and what, what would it look like if we looked around the country at all the A-plus ideas, all A-plus content, we aggregated it together into a website so if you go onto the Collegiate Collective site, you will find uh, local collegiate folks who are doing incredible stuff that no one would ever hear about normally, and we're constantly looking for their content and loading it up. So if you're a local church, you're a collegiate guy, you're a pastor, you're saying, how do I engage this college campus in my backyard? Go to the Collegiate Collective website. You're going to see three to four pieces of content each week. All is usable immediately within your, your context and setting. So that is really where the conversation begins. 
through the Collegiate Collective site. We'll advertise events and activities that are going on that you can be a part of from webinars to things called Hitchhikers, where you actually go in for a weekend and you look at one of the Collegiate Churches and how they function and work. And then uh, we're, we also do some smaller gatherings that are kind of by invitation only called uh, Collegiate Catch the Vision Tours. And uh, you can find out more about the next one that we have coming up by just checking out the website, Collegiate CTV. Again, that's www.collegiatectv.com. All right, final question for you. Uh, funding for collegiate churches. College students, not the wealthiest uh, demographic in the United States. So traditional BCM is traditionally funded by cooperative program funds or local churches. Is there a difference in the funding mechanics for a collegiate church plant? Yeah. So just talking about Baptist Collegiate Ministries increasingly, that they have been funded through a cooperative program support. As time goes on and as they continue to add staff to reach larger demographics within the campus, there is more and more support raising. So uh, using the, uh, the Mission Service Corps <clears throat> MSC channel through the North American Mission Board is, is one of those ways. So when you look at reaching college students, just in general, you know that it is not going to be a money tree. There's not going to be a lot of funding in it. But you also have to keep in mind that when we talk about reaching college students, the resources are in the harvest. So when we lead students to Christ, we are thinking of them not only as people who are going to make disciples who make disciples and plant churches who plant churches, but as alumni for those who are not planters or who do not serve on planting teams, they're going to give back into the process. So when you look at some of the early or the younger collegiate churches, those who are five years or younger, uh, you see NAM offering support into uh, some of the planting startup funds, local state conventions, giving into startup funds, uh, associations as well, local churches supporting anything else that you'd see that would go along with the typical church plant. You're going to see those same kind of funding and resources go on. Uh, but what we do see with the collegiate church plants is there's going to have to be a continued effort to bring funds in from the outside until the church gets to a place where it can be self-supporting, self-funding internally. Some make that commitment and they get there soon. Uh, Cornerstone, Grace Point, those would be examples. There are some like H2O uh, at Bowling Green State or the H2O Network that are will perpetually remain at a place where they're raising funds in. Some people would say, oh man, that, that cannot be. We cannot do it that way. Well, the, the reality is if we're going to reach college students, we're going to continue to need to find effective ways to do that. And some of those are not going to be as clean and easy as we'd like them to be. But we know that if we continue to plant churches on college campuses, we'll continue to see those community churches evolve over time. All right, Brian, thanks again for joining us today. How can uh, the listeners get in touch with you more? Yeah, probably the best way is via Twitter at B-R-I-F-R-Y-E. So again, that's at B-R-I-F-R-Y-E or through the North American Mission Board email account, which is bfryatnam.net. All right, Brian. Thanks again, man. O-H. I-O, Jonathan. You have a great day, man. Thanks for your time. All right, man. Thanks for that, Jonathan. Uh, we certainly appreciate Brian uh, checking in to share with us all that's going on in Collegiate Ministries. Yeah, Collegiate Ministries played a big part in my life. I met my wife through Collegiate Ministries, so I'm fond of them. And uh, so, you know, I, it has a place in my heart. I, I appreciate all the guys out there that do Collegiate Ministry. I have some friends who still do that, and I'm still in touch with my collegiate ministry on the campus of the University of Southern Mississippi, uh, the BSU there, still going strong under the leadership of Chris Walters. And before we get to this week in SBC history, I want to remind you that this week's episode is sponsored by the Nine Marks at Southeastern Conference. For more information on that, go online to ninemarkssee.com. 
www.sbcnewsradio.org. And that's going to move us to my favorite part of the week this week in SBC history. Amy, blow our minds. I'm going to need you to let me have at least one more uh, political convention reference. And so Ross we're Perot. going to go... No, no, we're going to go back to 1980. Uh, and it, it's, it was August 14th. So, I mean, it was kind of, I guess, bleeding over into last week, but the 14th was uh, Sunday this time around. So we're going to stick it in this week. And in, at the Democratic National Convention in 1980, so this would have been a uh, Carter convention. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the incumbent president at the time. There was a two-and-a-half-minute prayer uh, before the DNC um, on August 14th, and Southern Baptist Convention President Bailey Smith uh, gave that, really? that prayer. He did. And in it, he asked God to forgive America for the blight of immorality and for its disregard for the lives of both the living and and the unborn. Wow. So he was, uh, they, they had invited him to give the invocation for that particular session of the convention. So, you know, August 14th this week was on Sunday, but this would have been like toward the end of that uh, week. I think it was the very end. And what he did was, um, you know, we, we saw some prayers as we watched the convention this year that seemed if you a want bit... To call them that. Uh, they, they were a bit more just political statements than anything else. And he took advantage of that moment and he prayed. Uh, the, the Baptist Press article says to pray an evangelical prayer. Wow. And he asked God, he asked God to bring America back to the issues that made it great and that the Bible would become the nation's standard of living. Did he say to make America great again? I don't know about that, but he did say he, he, he did ask for God's blessings and protection on President Carter and prayed that uh, President Carter would always lean on God for direction and strength. And uh, the one quote that's in there is that he, he asked that America never forget that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Um, and then he said that his petition regarding the sanctity of life was a reference to the Democratic campaign platform of that year that favored the availability of abortion. Now, what's interesting is obviously, you know, now we look 36 years later and it's kind of gone the off the rails platform, since then. Yeah. Yeah. It does much more than just favor the availability of it. Um but it that's that was a great thing to just read in there and look that back at that time and, and Bailey Smith is a I, I know just a highly respected leader in uh, in our convention and when we look back at the the SBC presidents particularly during that time they were uh, playing some very important roles but to see this and to see where he was asked uh, asked to pray and to participate at a major party convention and to look at the opportunity that he took uh, to focus on that, um, I was just very uh, I, I I was I just loved it. I, I was very moved when I read that story. So I've got a link to that uh, Baptist Press from that week, and so really important. We've been talking about these issues uh, a lot, but this isn't the first time uh, because we were doing it also 36 years ago this week in SBC history. That's very cool. Bailey Smith is one of those, uh, I, I won't say he gets forgotten in the early conservative resurgence years, but you don't hear him mentioned as much uh, as you know the Adrian Rogers and Jerry Vines and those kind of guys. Um, not that Bailey is any less important in the conservative resurgence, but 
No, but I'll, yeah, but I'll say this. When you do hear him mentioned, uh, it is with tremendous respect oh, of every course. time. Yeah, and he leads yeah. a legacy. Uh, his sons, you know, living that legacy, uh, Stephen and yeah. Josh over in the uh, the Metroplex area. Stephen's at, at uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a dean over there and uh, on staff at Prestonwood. And Josh is a pastor in the, the Metroplex as well. So uh, his legacy lives on. And uh, kind of neat to, to hear that name once again. Yes. All right, that's going to move us to our resources of the week. Amy, your resource of the week is? Okay, so I'm going to go kind of nostalgic for this one, and um, it really doesn't have anything to do with the SBC, Jonathan. No, but, neither does mine, so it's okay. Yeah, but I think some of our listeners will like this because a lot of them are probably from the South or have some connection just because that's where so many Southern Baptists are. Um, it's a book that is coming out on... August 22nd. So it's coming out in four days. I'm very excited about it. It's in the series called Images of um, Modern America, I guess, or Images of America. You see them around, like maybe your town, that they'll uh, they'll have history uh, pictures of of buildings in your town or things like that. It's kind of artifacts. Well, they are releasing one about Opryland, USA. Really? Yes. Oh, now you caught I am my interest. So excited. Amy Thompson's going to be all over this. She misses Opryland more than anybody I know. No, she can't miss it more than me. Oh, okay. Um, It's the hardest thing for those of us who spent our childhood going because now as as many of you, you you may go and shop at Opry Mills and it's a fine mall. It's lovely, but... It's no Opryland. It's no Opryland USA. It was like the greatest theme park of... The, you know, of Southern history. Um, well, I would argue kind of to, against you on that. Well, but, you have to take Disney World out of that. No, I was but talking about Silver Dollar City, but okay. Oh, please. Don't, will, don't you start, oh, Amy. Goodness. Don't you start, Amy We could Amy do Whitfield. an entire episode going toe-to-toe on Opryland versus Silver Dollar City. That, that's on what our other ever. podcast, This Week in American Roller Coasters and what National ever. Parks. Anyway, um, so... The hard thing about those of us who loved Opryland is that it's just gone. Like, it's just not there. Yeah, there's nothing even, left. You can't even like see no, it. You just it's in your head and that's all. It's just your memories. So the local PBS station, WDCN there in Nashville, did a like a forty five minute documentary about Opryland. And I've, I've, I've watched that several times, actually loved it. So I saw that this book was coming out. I am so excited. I cannot wait uh, to get it. I'm going to have it coming to my door on the 22nd. So next week, I'll have to tell you how great it was. I'm, I, I'm doing a, like a look inside on the Amazon so you can see a few pictures of it. But very, very special. I'm going to check it out. Remember? I've been to Opry. I went to Opryland once and I really enjoyed it, but... I never, I was too young to really remember it. So, yeah, we we had season passes, and so I went a lot when I was a kid, and then uh, it closed down my senior year of college, and I can remember going going back just to to enjoy. But I've looked online, like you at maps, you can look at like the old the old souvenir maps, and you just can see it. I've made the children sit down and told them all the rides and everything. <laughs> just a great place. Yeah, and Opryland is one of those places where it was a tax reason, I think. That's what I heard about the reason that they closed it down. It was something having to do with having to pay taxes. The city was changing some zoning or something. Um, but 
Opryland, it closed down too soon. If they would have made it uh, through those lean years, they would be rolling in it right now. Because the boom that this city has gone on since Opryland yeah. left, oh, Amy, it would be huge. And there I'd be taking my children on the Wabash Cannonball. Would have been amazing. They had the best roller coaster, the Screaming Delta Demon with no ta- uh, no track that no, you would go up. How's it a roller yeah, coaster the, if there was no track? So the first hill was a track. And then it was basically like a luge kind of thing. This concrete. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So you would go up this track and then it would basically let you loose. And your your car would kind of go up the sides. And then as you would go through that it. That doesn't about sound three, safe. It was phenomenal. It was my favorite roller coaster. Uh, and then it would have a couple of spots where there was a short little track that would kind of get you back on. And then you'd go back. It, it was fantastic. I'm going to have to check out that one because that, that sounds exciting. And I like roller coasters and theme parks and that kind of stuff anyway. So, And I like nostalgia, so that'll be fun. So I have there to check go. that one out. All right, my resource of the week is American Icon by Bryce Hoffman. It chronicles the rise of Ford and the turnaround oh, yeah. that uh, Alan Mulally. I read 400 pages of this book in three days earlier this week. I sat down Sunday afternoon to just kind of – read it while I had some downtime and just flew through it, read 250 pages Sunday night. Uh, just absolutely phenomenal story. If you like business books, uh, it it's a business book, but it reads like a thriller because it's it's really narrative driven and it talks yeah. about business principles. It talks about the turnaround at Ford, but at the same time, it's really just a story of Ford's turnaround, incredible turnaround by Alan Mulally. Uh, saw him at the GLS last week, the Global Leadership Summit from Willow Creek uh, that I went to last week and just, I, I was like, oh, I got to get that book. So it came in, started reading it, and couldn't put it down. Phenomenal book. Very cool. I highly recommend it. It's not your typical business book, but it, it does have some business stuff in it. And it, it's just just a really good read. Uh, you know, I think anybody who you know works in an organization and leads people uh, can learn a lot from it. So that is our show this week. Amy, the Olympics, they're ending. I know you're sad. Um, but at the same yeah. time, all your things that you care about ended last week anyway so yeah my favorite is always the first week stuff but you know we're life's getting back in the swing of things kids go back to school yeah, convocation today yes we did it was a it was a big day a lot of fun yep tell us about the big day because something awesome happened yeah so it was convocation which is kind of a you know a, a fun time anyway but at our fall convocation that is when any faculty members who have been elected to the faculty uh which is a, is a bit more it's not tenure but it's a, it's a bit more of a, a a permanent kind of settled thing so most faculty when they come in uh or a lot of them come in and kind of uh full-time faculty under presidential contract or whatever and then uh but then they'll go through election and so one of the four that was elected to the faculty this past spring was uh, Keith Whitfield. So Any relation? he got to sign. Uh, yeah. Yes. I was there on the second row taking pictures. Um, so he got to uh, sign the abstract of principles and the Baptist faith and message today in the really, you know, big book and stuff. Yep. It was kind of very, very formal, but it, it was, it was a neat moment. Yep. It was. Uh, I saw it online and, and saw some pictures of it. Really good picture from Becca Stone King of that so yeah uh, that was fun. yeah she surprised me with that one yeah yeah that, that was, was a good fun. one that was a great picture 
So, all right. Well, congratulations to Keith. Congratulations to everybody at Southeastern on uh, kicking off the new semester. I know a lot of the others are. Uh, Amy, you had a another nugget about the first of the semester and your fall enrollment numbers. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, now I can't, I don't, I can't give you the exact total number of new students at Southeastern off the top of my head. I think it's somewhere around three hundred or so starting this fall that are brand new. Uh, but 97 of them uh, are women. So that has been really exciting. And I've gotten to do a lot of things with some of the new female students on campus. It's been a, a fun week getting to talk to a lot of them. And uh, they're focusing in so many different areas, missiology, biblical counseling, ministry to women, uh, and more. And so uh, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be fun. All right. Well, congratulations to all of them uh, joining Southeastern and, and all the other students joining all of our other SBC seminaries are getting things kicked off, I know, uh, this week and next. So uh, a lot exciting times at uh, a lot of the seminaries. I saw some pictures from Matt Hall over at Boyce and as he's kicking off his first semester as the dean of Boyce College and on the campus Yeah, of those Southern. were great. Those were great. Loved it. Fun times had by all at the uh, seminaries across the SBC. So, and, uh, and don't forget, first week of classes starting at Gateway Seminary uh, coming up. Yes. Very fun. All right. Well, that'll do it for us this week. We'll be back with you next week. See you next week. See you next week.